Hebrews 5:11 to 6:20. We have many things to tell you about this, but it is hard to explain because you have lost interest in listening. You have had enough time that by now you should be teachers, but you need someone to teach you again the first lessons of God's teaching. You still need the teaching that is like milk. You're not ready for solid food. Anyone who lives on milk is still a baby and is not able to understand much about living right. But solid food is for people who have grown up. From their experience, they have learned to see the difference between good and evil. So we should be finished with the basic lessons about Christ. We should not have to keep going back to where we started. We began our new life by turning away from the evil we did in the past and by believing in God. That's when we were taught about baptisms, laying hands on people, the resurrection of those who have died and the final judgment. Now we need to go forward to more mature teaching. And that's what we will do if God allows. After people have left the way of Christ, can you make them change their lives again? I am talking about people who once learned the truth, received God's gift and shared in the Holy Spirit. They were blessed to hear God's good message and see the great power of his new world. But then they left it all behind and it is not possible to make them change again. That's because those who leave Christ are nailing him to the cross again, shaming him before everyone. So people are like land that gets plenty of rain and produces a good crop for those who farm it. That kind of land has God's blessing. But other people are like land that grows only thorns and weeds. It is useless and in danger of being cursed by God. It will be destroyed by fire. Dear friends, I'm not saying this because I think it is happening to you. We really expect that you will do better, that you will do the good things that come with being saved. God is fair and he will remember all the work you have done. He will remember that you showed your love to him by helping his people and that you continue to help them. We want each of you to be willing and eager to show your love like that the rest of your life. Then you will be sure to get what you hope for. We don't want you to be lazy. We want you to be like those who, because of their faith and patience, will get what God has promised. God made a promise to Abraham and there is no one greater than God. So he made the promise with an oath in his own name, an oath that he would do what he promised. He said, I will surely bless you. I will give you many descendants. Abraham waited patiently for this to happen and later he received what God promised. People always use the name of someone greater than themselves to make a promise with an oath. The oath proves that what they say is true and there is no more arguing about it. God wanted to prove that his promises was true. He wanted to prove this he wanted to prove this to those who would get what he promised. He wanted them to understand clearly that his that his purposes never change. So God said something would happen and he proved what he said by adding an oath. These two things cannot change. God cannot lie when he says something and he cannot lie when he makes an oath. So both of these things are a great help to us who have come to God for safety. They encourage us to hold on to that hope for, that is ours. This hope we have is like an anchor for us. It is strong and sure and keeps us safe. It goes through the curtain into the most holy place in God's temple. 
Jesus has already entered in there and opened the way for us. He has become the high priest forever, just like Melchizedek. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to come to look at the letter to the Hebrews uh, today and over the next few weeks. We thank you that it is a letter of encouragement and we pray that even as we look at this portion this morning, that it would be a, a time of encouragement. Yes, there may be some challenge in it, but we pray that above all it would be an encouragement for us to go on to grow in Christ. We ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. I want to begin with a quote from Hamlet, but it's not the Hamlet you're thinking about. Two frogs fell into a can of cream, or so I've heard it told. The sides of the can were shiny and steep. The cream was deep and cold. Oh, what's the use, croaked number one. Tis fate, no helps around. Goodbye, my friends, goodbye, sad world. And weeping still, he drowned. But number two, of sterner stuff, dog paddled in surprise, the while he wiped his face and dried his creamy eyes. I'll swim a while at least, he said, or so I've heard, he said. It really wouldn't help the world if one more frog were dead. An hour or two he kicked and swam, not once he stopped to mutter, but kicked and kicked and swam and kicked, then hopped out via butter. Now that little ditty's from T.C. Hamlet, whoever he or she is, but it really sums up the message of Hebrews, you may be surprised to hear. We read in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 1, so we should be finished with the beginning lessons about Christ. The writer is wanting to encourage these Hebrew Christians, these Jews for Jesus, to go on with the Lord. They're under pressure, not so much to go back, but to stay where they are. He wants to encourage them to go on, to go forward. In those days, you see, Christianity was about to become a criminal offence. Being a Christian was becoming more and more dangerous, more and more difficult. But there was a way, a safe way, out of that. And the safe way was to hide away in Judaism. Initially, you see, Christianity was considered a Jewish sect, and Judaism was considered a protected religion in the Roman Empire. So if you didn't want your kids to be picked on at school, or if you wanted to keep your nice house and not have your windows smashed in, the safest path then was to go back into Judaism. That's the kind of issue that the writer to the Hebrews is dealing with here. Why can't we just call ourselves Messianic Jews? Why do we have to stick our necks out and call ourselves Christians? If you stick your neck out, you'll get your head chopped off. So why can't we just stay within Judaism? That seems to be where these people are at. And that's why they're not able and they're not willing to receive what the writer to the Hebrews is going to talk about. They're not ready to go on to think about Jesus as a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
The writer wants to talk about the high priesthood of Jesus, but they're not with him. Verses 10 and 11 of chapter 5, God made him high priest, just like Melchizedek. We have many things to tell you about this, the writer says, but it is hard to explain because you have stopped trying to understand. Why are they so slow to learn? The English Standard Version of the Bible translates it that they are dull of hearing. You see, there are certain things that they don't want to listen to. There are certain things that they don't want to hear. F.F. Bruce, a great Bible commentator, describes it like this. He says, and I quote, The intellect is not over-ready to entertain an idea that the heart finds unpalatable. The intellect is not over-ready to entertain an idea that the heart finds unpalatable, end quote. That's where these people are at. To acknowledge Jesus as a great high priest after the order of Melchizedek would force them to break with Judaism. This is borne out in the opening verses of chapter 6. The beginning lessons about Christ that are listed there are actually the things that are common to Christianity and to Judaism. Baptisms, laying hands on people, the resurrection of those who've died, and the final judgment. These people are saying, let's let's just stick with the things that we both believe. These things are all fundamental truths that Christians and Jews can agree about. Let's not go on to talk about Jesus as a great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. The writer is wanting them to see that unless they're prepared to go on and to grapple with who Jesus really is and what it means to think about Jesus as the Messiah, then they're really in great danger of losing out altogether. They want to save their skins by staying in the synagogue, but he's saying to them, look, if you don't go on to Jesus and nail your colours to the mast and understand what it means to be a Christian, then you'll actually lose your soul. Let's go on to the priesthood of Jesus Christ, which brings true righteousness. Chapter 5, verse 13, anyone who lives on milk is still a baby and is not able to understand much about living right. So let's look at how the writer deals with the topic in this passage. First of all, in verses chapter 5, verse 11, through to chapter 6 and verse 3, he expresses disappointment at their lack of progress. You know, when I've run marriage enrichment or parenting courses, those who most need to be there for those courses don't come. What people need to hear is what they don't want to listen to. That was the situation with these Hebrew Christians. It's a bit like when you're at the airport. There's always somebody who fails to make it to the departure lounge on time. So you hear that message that comes over the PA system. Would Mr So-and-so or Mrs So-and-so on flight such-and-such please make your way to the gate lounge because your aircraft is ready for immediate departure? Well, the writer to the Hebrews plane is ready to depart, but there are passengers who aren't on board yet. So he's sending out that message. The plane's engines are revving. We're ready to take off. Will these Hebrew Christians please get on board? So why aren't they on board? 
Why do Christians lose momentum in their Christian lives? Why do we sometimes get stuck in a rut? You know, I find it very challenging when people ask me, so John, how much have you grown in Christ over the last year? Sometimes I look back and I have to say, well, I don't know that I've grown very much at all. You see, sometimes you can get stuck in a rut, sometimes a rut that lasts for years. There are times when people come to Christ and then they come to an impasse and they're not quite sure how to move forward. They get stuck there. Well, that's where these uh, Hebrew Christians were. Look at how the writer addresses this. Notice what he envisages for these Hebrew Christians as the way forward. Verse 12 of chapter 5. You have had enough time that by now you should be teachers. But you need someone to teach you again the first lessons of God's teaching. You still need the teaching that is like milk. You are not ready for solid foods. He's saying you're going round and round in circles all the time. By now you should be teaching other people. He sees that as the future for these Hebrew Christians that everyone is speaking the word of God. That's exactly what a mature Christian church looks like. It isn't just the talking head up front who speaks the word of God, it's everyone, whether it's in their home to the kids or in their workplace to their workmates. You want to be able to get to a point where you can sit down and read the Bible with them. Paul says, for example, in Romans chapter 15 and verse 14, My brothers and sisters, I know without a doubt that you are full of goodness and have all the knowledge you need, so you are certainly able to counsel each other. He's talking to the so-called laity, not to the professionals. You ought to be speaking the word of God to one another, applying the gospel to one another's situations. John Bunyan was converted by overhearing a conversation between a group of middle-aged ladies who were sitting on their doorsteps and talking about the things of God. Here's John Bunyan's testimony, I quote, On a certain day in the good providence of God, I had to make a trip to Bedford for my work. And in one of the streets of that town, I came to a place where there were three or four poor women sitting on, on door in the sun, talking about the things of God. Since I was now willing to listen to such discussion, I came close to hear what they were saying. I was now a brisk talker in matters of religion, but they were far above my reach. Their talk was about a new birth, a work of God in their hearts, and how they were sure that they'd been born as helpless sinners. They talked about the way that God had visited their souls with his love in the Lord Jesus and spoke of the particular words and promises that had helped and comforted and supported them against the temptations of the devil. What's more, he says, they talked about particular temptations they had from Satan and they told each other how God had helped them. They also talked about their evil hearts and their unbelief and their goodness. It seemed to me that they spoke with such pleasure of the Bible and they had so much grace in all that they said that they had found a new sort of world. They were people who could not be compared with anyone else. End quote. 
That's what the writer of Hebrews envisaged for this bunch of Jewish believers. That's what a mature church looks like. So how do we measure up to that? There are two things that we can draw from this picture that make Christians go on to maturity. The first is in verse 12, teaching others. Any teacher will tell you that the best way to learn is by teaching others. So if you're stuck in a rut and you're not making progress in your Christian life, maybe this is what you need to hear this morning. The way for you to go on and learn and grow is to start teaching. I told a lady once that it was time to stop being a sponge that soaks up teaching and to have what you know already squeezed out by teaching others. So often we think that we need to come along to church to be spoon-fed by the professionals. But that's not what the writer to the Hebrews is saying. He's saying you don't grow by being spoon-fed. You grow by grasping God's word and then passing it on to others. It's not simply a matter of understanding the theory and then lecturing everybody in sight. Look at verse 14 of chapter 5. I'm reading from the English Standard Version here. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So the first way that we go on to maturity is by teaching others. And the second is by applying God's word to your life, putting what you're learning into constant use. So if you're spiritually stagnating or if you're going backwards and slipping away or maybe you're stuck and you're not quite there yet, maybe this is what you need to hear. Ask yourself, am I putting into use what I've already learned? If you're stuck and you haven't made any progress for years, go back in your mind and ask yourself, when did I stop actually applying the word of God to my life? because I'm sure that's probably where the blockage is. Jesus says in John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth. He doesn't say, if this is the truth, follow it. He says, follow me and you'll know whether it's the truth or not. That's the way to grow. John chapter 7, verse 17 People who really want to do what God wants will know that my teaching comes from God, Jesus says. They will know that this teaching is not my own. Really, God won't begin to give further light until we begin to walk by the light that we already have. And friends, that's what some of us have to do if we want to go forward, if we want to grow on to maturity. We go forward by teaching others what we've learned and by constantly putting into practice ourselves what we've learned. That's how you move on to solids from milk. So let's do it, says the writer of Hebrews, verse 1 of chapter 6. Therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. It's probably not what you would have expected him to say. You'd expect him to say, well, Okay, let's go back over it all again. Let's go back to the ABC. But he doesn't. He says, no, you've been there long enough. 
If you don't move on from there, you've had it. Let's leave these elementary things and go on to maturity in Christ. Let's throw away the comfort blanket. Let's move on from those things that we hold in common with the Jews. Let's move on to the things that we don't hold in common with them. Let's discover the way to be right with God, the only way to be right with God. Let me talk with you about the great high priest Jesus, who is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So he's expressed his disappointment that they haven't moved on. Then he warns them about the danger of staying where they are. I reckon verses 4 to 6 are probably the scariest verses in the Bible. That's chapter 6, verses 4 to 6. Sometimes we can read these verses and do psychological damage to ourselves and to other people because we can misunderstand what these verses are saying. We have to put them in the context of the whole of the letter to the Hebrews. Look at verse 4 and 5. Well, all three verses, 4 to 6. For it is impossible, the writer says, in the case of those who've once been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him to contempt. So, Do these verses mean that a true Christian can lose his or her salvation? Some people have certainly taken them to mean that. The phrases there certainly seem to describe authentic Christian experience. But if you read it that way, this brings the passage into conflict with the rest of the Bible. Jesus says, for example, in John chapter 10 and verse 28, I give my sheep eternal life. They will never die and no one can take them out of my hands. And the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, I am sure that the good work God began in you will continue until he completes it on the day when Jesus Christ comes again. Think about this. Eternal life, if it is eternal, is eternal. It's not intermittent. So if you're saved, you're saved. You can't be saved one minute and then unsaved the next. I mean, how safe is saved? So it can't mean that a real Christian who's trusting in Jesus can lose their salvation. Does it mean then that you can never be sure that you're a real Christian, that you have all sorts of experiences and get so near and yet still fall short? Well, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus certainly warns in Matthew 7, verse 22, on that last day, many will call me Lord. They will say, Lord, Lord, by the power of your name we spoke for God and by your name we forced out demons and did many miracles. Jesus is saying there will be people who will be thrown into hell and excluded from heaven, people who've been involved in all kinds of supernatural activity in the church. It's possible to have spiritual experiences without actually being a real Christian. Because this is something, these spiritual experiences are something external, something that's happening in the atmosphere of a church meeting. But it doesn't mean that you're being saved. There's a danger here, and we do need to take that on board. But I don't believe that's what the writer's talking about here in Hebrews 6. 
We are not meant to be unsure of our salvation. The writer wants us to be sure of it. He wants us to enjoy our salvation, to know that we are saved. So what's the warning about? I believe the last part of verse 6 is the key. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to content. See, he's not so much talking about the spiritual state or the psychological state or the understanding of these people. He's actually talking about where they are in the history of redemption. The verb in verse 1 of chapter 6 is in the passive tense. So he's, being, he's talking about being carried on to maturity. Let us be carried on to maturity. In other words, this is something that's happening to them rather than something that they are to do. In verse 3 he says, and this we will do if God permits. Let's be carried on to maturity and if God permits, we will do so. He's talking to people who are living at a unique time. The temple hasn't yet been destroyed, but these people were alive when the Christ event was taking place. The Messiah has come. The end of the ages has come. The world to come has dawned. They've tasted the powers of the age to come. They've been caught up in this climax of history. So they're at a very crucial point. They can either say, well, let's stay Jews, and if they say that, then they've had it, Or they can embrace Jesus as their Messiah and understand what they're doing. See, it's not so much whether you're a counterfeit Christian or not, or whether you've had the right experience or not. He's talking of Jewish believers who are in danger of missing out on Jesus because they're scared stiff of persecution and they want to go back to the synagogue or stay in Judaism. Their problem is they need to be skilled in the word of righteousness. Verse 13 of chapter 5, everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. And they never will be skilled in the word of righteousness if they refuse to take on board Jesus as great high priest. You see, their problem is that they're still Jewish in their thinking about the way to get right with God. In Judaism, the way to get right with God was to bring a sacrifice through the priest and to bring it again and again and again as often as you sin. But Jesus isn't that kind of a priest. You can't crucify him all over again every time you sin. If that was the case, then every time you sinned, you'd have to come and crucify him all over again. If you're thinking Jewishly about the way to be right with God, that would be the logical outcome of what you'd have to do. You see, Jesus isn't a priest like Aaron. Aaron had to keep coming again and again and again, offering sacrifices every time you sinned. But Jesus has offered himself once and for all and has entered into the veil a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He has has brought a once and for all eternal righteousness for those who trust in him. The second part of Hebrews 1 verse 3 says, The Son made people clean from their sins. Then he sat down at the right side of God, the Great One in heaven. He can't be talking about Aaron there because Aaron couldn't sit down. There was nowhere for him to sit because in the temple or in the tabernacle there were no seats. He is a priest who, after he's done the job, 
can sit down because he has done the job. He doesn't have to repeat it over and over and over again. That's the meaning of the high priesthood of Jesus. Actually, by the way, this is the error of Roman Catholic theology. I'm not someone who wants to speak against other churches, but it's important for us to understand that this is one of the important errors of the Roman Catholic Mass. You see, in the Mass, the priest represents the sacrifice. The problem for Roman Catholicism is that it's still stuck in Judaism. So the priest represents the sacrifice of Jesus in the bread and the wine offered on the altar. That's to think of Jesus in an ironic sense. As often as you sin, the sacrifice has to be offered. So you have to keep coming to confession and you have to keep coming to Mass. And you can never have assurance of salvation until your dying day. But we believe that the bread and the wine represents the once and for all finished sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. They represent that so we can have strong assurance that our sins are forgiven and that we are forever right with God because Jesus has done it once and for all. Do you see the difference? Do you see what's worrying the writer? Stay with what you have in common with the Jews, stay with the elementary teachings, and you don't have a saviour. You don't have a hope. He's saying, let's get right into this. Let's have a real understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done as the great high priest who brings true righteousness for all who trust in him. He's saying the foundations are there in the Old Testament, the foundations are there in Judaism, but let's not stay building the foundations. Let's build the house. His fear isn't about apostasy. His fear is that they'll shut themselves off from the Saviour, that they'll get stuck where they are and never move forward. This is a strong warning. But let me say it's tempered by strong encouragement. Look at verse 9 of chapter 6. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, he says, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. The writer to Hebrews, you see, is a pastor. He isn't telling them some sort of theological conundrum so that they can have a debate about it. He wants them and us to make sure that we do go on. He expresses his disappointment over their lack of progress. He warns of the danger of staying where they are. But underlying the whole chapter is his delight in the promises of God, the possibility of full assurance of salvation. You see, for the Christian, it's not normal to be doubting. Yes, we can have times of doubt, but that's not the normal condition to be in doubt as to whether or not you're saved. The writer of Hebrews wants us to know. He wants us to be certain. You see, if you know that you're loved by God, that's an environment in which you're going to grow to maturity. And that's what the writer wants for the Hebrew Christians and for us. Apparently, along the Mediterranean coast, there are sheer cliffs. And if there was a storm and the sea was rough in uh, New Testament times, it was almost impossible to get into the harbours. But they had devised a method. They'd send a forerunner into the harbour with a line. And then they'd pull on the line 
to haul the boat into the harbour. That's actually the picture in verses 19 and 20 of Hebrews chapter 6, where we read, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Our great high priest, Jesus, has gone before us. He's there now. That's where our assurance comes from. Not from our feelings, not from our failures, not from our successes. Our assurance comes from the fact that Jesus is our great high priest and he's actually gone into the inner sanctuary and he remains there forever. He isn't coming back to the cross to die again. He's made the offering for all who would trust in him and it's for all time. He's there in heaven now. And if we grab hold of him by faith, he will bring us there too. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for who you are. Forgive us that we sometimes fail to appreciate just who you are and how wonderful you are. Forgive us if we think that Christianity is somehow just another religion like Judaism. Forgive us if we think that Christianity is just a bit better than Judaism and so we've chosen Christianity over Judaism. Help us, Lord, to understand that you are the Messiah, the King Priest, the one to whom all the Old Testament prophets pointed. Help us to understand that through the shedding of your own blood, you've bought for us the way to be right with God, a way that can never be taken from us. Help us to put our trust there and not to compare ourselves with others. Help us to look to you and to keep on looking to you. We ask this for your sake and in your name. Amen.